I profiled Jordan Peele and walked around a little bit with him and saw people respond to his presence. Most people have to confirm it's me before they flip out. I was gonna ask about that. Right. Yeah. A lot of people assume that it's me and just go in, but a lot of people like say, are you Wesley Morris first? Uh -huh. And that's an interesting thing is I then like by confirming am consenting to whatever huh. is about to happen, right? <laughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. A reminder, if you've been enjoying this podcast, to take a moment and give it a friendly rating or review at iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform, as that helps spread the word about what I do. Now, this week I'm excited to be talking with Wesley Morris, who is probably best known for being a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic at large for the New York Times. But I've come to appreciate Wesley Morris first and foremost as a podcast host. And in fact, he was a big influence on my own decision to start a podcast of my own. For years now, going back to Wesley's stint as a staff writer and podcast host for ESPN's excellent but now defunct sports and culture website Grantland, I've come to look forward to his affable and incisive takes on everything from blockbuster movies to NBA uniforms to depictions of race and popular culture. Wesley was probably the first podcast personality that I became a fan of in the same sense that people become fans of athletes or movie stars. But unlike traditional kinds of celebrity, there's something personal about podcast fandom. It's like these people are speaking directly to you in a way that makes them feel like they're a part of your friend group. Wesley now co-hosts a New York Times podcast called Still Processing with technology reporter Jenna Wortham. And as it turns out, I'm not the only person who's a big Wesley Morris fan. He actually gets recognized in the streets all the time. So we begin our discussion by talking about the unique nature of podcast celebrity and how Wesley relates to it. We also talk about his forthcoming book on the history of how black people have been depicted in American popular culture, as well as a number of other topics, including the task of the cultural critic in the 21st century, the schlubby fashion sensibilities of basketball player Michael Jordan, and the evolution of sports uniforms, including the legacy of those tight 1970s basketball shorts known as nuthuggers. I talked to Wesley in the living room of my friend's apartment in NoHo, Manhattan, and one of the joys of using borrowed space in New York City is that sometimes the cleaning lady will drop in to do her job, so be warned that this episode includes about four minutes of vacuum cleaner noise towards the end. But for now, before the cleaning lady shows up, let's listen in as the conversation begins with Wesley's take on what it's like to be podcast famous. So you're talking, you're getting recognized. It's not just that you're, oh, yeah. you're in Austin for a conference and people are asking no, about No, it's no, no, no. You are it's being like, recognized as Wesley Morris. I'm on the subway. Yeah. I'm getting on an airplane. Yeah. I'm buying food. Um, I'm just like listening to somebody else's podcast, walking down the street. I mean, it, it's a really fascinating thing. Like Jenna Wortham and I, who I do a show with now, uh, we were on the subway just yesterday and this woman who was in town from Chicago stopped us. I thought she was friends with Jenna because she was she was so casual and like, hi Jenna, how are you? It's great to see you. And Jenna was like, Jenna's body language is also, she's so good at being recognized at this point. But it's just fascinating. Was it someone who you would have thought was a, a, a friend of Jenna's? Yes. Okay. Yes. This was a person, this is like a It young, wasn't an elderly white lady. It's a young Indian woman okay. who was in town with her boyfriend. I didn't know any of this until she told me, but when uh -huh. she approached us, I was like, oh, this must, must be one of Jenna's friends, or friends. Right. But it's, it turns out she was a fan of the show. But she didn't, I mean, she paid no attention to me. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't until about five minutes into the two of them talking that she turned to me and said, hi, Wesley. And then she went back to talking to Jenna huh. because Jenna engenders that kind of intimacy. Um, but that, I think that kind of, um, I can't think of, I mean, I guess like local news people probably tell a version of this story. Um, I'm friends with a guy who, who is, a, is a broadcaster uh, local news person and you know I've been out with him and he can't go anywhere without people saying hey we love you we're like hey what's going on man and uh, and Roger Ebert was like that in Chicago too I mean I guess Roger Ebert I'd only been out with him in Chicago but you walk down Michigan Avenue of course yeah and he couldn't go three steps without people like falling over themselves to say hello 
Um, so is that the same model as the podcasting thing that people, that it creates a kind of celebrity, but it's an approachable celebrity? I think so. But you know, conversely, I mean, I want to say this is all a, 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 the result of being able to see people. But like I said, when Grantland started, there was no visual component on my end and people knew to stop me. And then, but, I, but just to finish this like incomplete thought, to, to just further indicate that something has changed in terms of people's being recognizable without having a platform, like a, like a visual or audio platform. When I'm out with Ta-Nehisi Coates, the, <laughs> the way people, it is, it is a very interesting thing that happens. Like, I mean, a lot of people won't necessarily recognize him, but the people who do, and I'm talking like, there was a guy we were crossing the street one day and there was a bus driver who, we just heard this honking as we were crossing the street. And we didn't, you know, it's New York, we don't pay any attention to it. And then I just turned around and I looked and the bus driver is honking at Tanahasi, <laughs> Like honking, like, yeah, man, yeah. And he just turned around and was just very graciously waved back. It, like that, Bill Simmons and Ta-Nehisi Coates are two people who don't have, they're not like, you know, it's the, the way that their fame works or the way that their recognizability works is just different from like a, it isn't like, a, like, oh my God, is that Channing Tatum? Oh my God, is that Kim Kardashian? Oh my right, God, is that right. Beyonce? It's like, it, it is much easier to, to do that to people at that level of, of fame, I imagine. Do you think that there's this, that they're similar? Because it seems like Bill Simmons, like a great thing. I, I just like listening to Bill Simmons. I like listening to you. I think there's something in the podcast, there's, there's sort of an intimacy mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it makes it easier to approach people because just somebody's in your ear, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're like a friend. They're like, they're like in your living room or whatever. Whereas Ta-Nehisi Ta is much more, he feels much more official than Bill Simmons. You know, Ta-Nehisi Ta yeah. is such yeah. a public intellectual, it feels like, whereas Bill Simmons is the sports guy. You know, he's, he's a guy who is riffing on movies, even though that's not really his thing, and you appreciate that. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, I don't know what the different energies are with the two of them, though, right? I mean, I do find that people, people, I don't know. I mean, I think that, that, that the, nobody's shouted at Ta-Nehisi to like, yo, come do a selfie with me. Yo, bro, come do, like, that is the thing that Bill gets. Oh, okay. Bill, right. Bill is constantly being, like, like begged to, to, like, prove something, you know. And is that bro-ish, or is that across all categories? Uh, I mean, I guess it's bro. I've never seen, I've never seen a non-bro do that, but I've seen many different kinds of people say hi to Bill. And, you know, ta of course, attracts a range of people. Right. Um, and you know, Jenna is a similar thing where like you're out with Jenna and like the range of people who stop her is just totally fascinating. I don't like, I'm not, it is just interesting living in New York and having something like that happen where like you're at a, I eat alone a lot and I sit at the bar a lot. Although I'm rethinking my relationship to this experience as I get older. You're, okay. Um, it's age and not exposure related no it's not that it's just like this is like a separate conversation but like you know i'm you know i i i am i answering your question <laughs> because I feel well, like... yeah no i mean <laughs> i knew i would have no problem in getting a conversation out of you you know because this is because you think about stuff like this um and you spoke to my students uh uh years ago and you you're you're good you're good at this sort of thing i guess there's sort of this spectrum that started like Ira Glass is probably my first sort of celebrity podcast friend guy, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I started listening to him when I was in Thailand. And so it was even though he was a radio guy, I was streaming it in the download era. And you're part of this pantheon now of people who are sort of in a celebrity category that didn't exist 10 years ago. Yes. You know, yes, in, yes. In, in my world, it's just like. Um, you know, I could listen to you and Bill Simmons forever because it's like listening to two smart friends talk about things in, in a smarter way than my actual friends, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you're on the other side. Actually, I'm curious to know if you have any people that you sort of consider a, on the street approachable because of your podcast listening habits. 
God, I would never do it. That's the really? other thing about people. I have to say the people who stop me on the street, I, I, I don't know. You know, there are, everybody's, I mean, there's a range, but most people are so comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are few people who are embarrassed to do it and they seem to have worked up some courage to, to have come over and said hi. Um, but for the most part, people are really friendly. Like sometimes I'm confused about why I'm being stopped. Like, did we go to college together? Mm. Did we, did, were we at a seminar uh, or a panel discussion? What, what is this intimacy that you have with me? And then I'm like, oh yeah, well now, now I know though. It's been like yeah. years of this. So yeah. I now know what the difference is between a person who like, I met like, we're, I'm friends with Rolf, and he told me to say hi if I ever saw you on the street. Like, so that's not the same thing. Right. That's different from the approach that people make to me on the street now. Um, well, I think celebrity has widened. I remember I was at Lollapalooza in 1993 in Portland, and I was standing in line for the toilets, and there was a guy in front of me who was the singer for Fishbone. I didn't know this at the time. Okay. Uh, Angelo Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah Angelo yeah. Moore. And I wasn't really paying attention, and I wasn't super into fishbone, like I got into fishbone after that time. And so, like the woman in front of him turned around and said, oh my God. And, oh. and uh, <laughs> not in a fannish way, but I thought that she, like, she just, an old friend happened to be standing uh, behind her in uh, line. Uh. Um, and so, I think that there's always been a level of that to celebrity, but now mm -hmm. it's just sort of, it's widened, yes, you know, it's that much... there's somewhere there's a, a teenage YouTube guy who gets recognized on the street. I mean, you know? I'm sure Lily Singh can't fart without somebody being like, oh my God, Lily Singh just farted, <laughs> you know? And most people, I mean, I don't, would I know Lily Singh if I saw her on the street? Maybe. Do you know who she is? Know. Okay, so Lily Singh is, I think she's the highest paid YouTube star in the world. And she does these. Is she South Asian? Yes, she's okay. American. Oh, wait, okay. is she American or Canadian? Ugh. Okay. I think she's either American. I think she's American. She's definitely she's North, North American. American. Yeah. And she does these little YouTube sketches about being a Punjabi, about you know Punjabi Indian culture, uh -huh. um, in like a kind of a, in an American context, and she's very very popular. And I I imagine that. She is very recognizable. It would be very interesting. I think a really good story, and I might like make somebody do this. I have no capacity to do this, but like following Lily Singh around for like a week and just seeing what that kind of fame is like. I mean, because you've seen toxic versions of that with these YouTube people, but you've never like nobody's written a good story about hmm. like one of these famous YouTube stars. Yeah, there was a New Yorker story about the the girl who sang the song Friday that. Oh, became, Rebecca Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, That's a bad version. Right, but that seems to be what comes out. You yes. Know? Um, but Lily Singh would seem to be an antidote, or like at least like an exception to that trend. Right. Um, but anyway, I would... There are people... Emily Bazelon is a person that I had a huge... Um, that I had a version of the thing that people have with other podcast people. Right. And, and, and like certain kind of TV or internet personality. Um, Emily Bazelon. Slate? She was at Slate for a long time. Now she's at the New York Times Magazine. And okay. I, I mean, I read her on, when she was at Slate. I still read her now that she's at the, mag, at the Times Magazine. But like when I was, when, the, when podcasting first began, she was the first person that I just fell in love with. I don't, her brain, she's so smart. And I went to a live taping of the Slate Political Gap Fest, which uh -huh. is the show she's on with David Plotz and um, John Dickerson. And I very nervously waited around afterward to like, like I hovered a little bit. I was hoping that Emily Bazelon would like acknowledge that I existed. And, and she kind of, she like maybe said hi, shook my hand and then left. It was. But I didn't give her anything, and I might, I don't know, I was probably so awkward, and she would have no memory of this. This is a person who I now have a text relationship with. When okay. she comes into the office, we have lunch. Uh -huh. um, she's, I mean, she's a person. Have you told her this? That No. Okay. No. It's too, it's slightly too mortifying <laughs> um, to subject another person to. Um, because you, nobody, no, no human being wants to hear that, 
they didn't recognize a beseeching quality in a person who was like expressing, who was trying to express admiration, but the object of the admiration was just like, I gotta, I, I've just been speaking for 75 minutes, I'm hungry and I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. Right. Which is probably where she was that day. And I was just like, I'm sure she has to go, but I wonder if she'll just like shake my hand. That was, huh. I had that, but I was so, mortified by my own behavior that I just said I'm never doing this again and honestly she was the last person and this was this would have been 2012 maybe and I've, I've never I've never said I mean I've been I've, I've had dinner near very famous people whose work I've admired but like I've just had enough people interrupt my dinners oh yeah to that where I just am like it's not that I don't mind, but I have nothing to contribute to the genre of interrupting people's dinner huh. to say how much I like their work. Yeah. I, I, and I imagine that there's a person who gets it all the time and it's just like, I don't. So what's the ideal approach? Come up to me and interrupt my dinner. Okay. Like, I just, I'm not doing it. Oh, you're not going to do it. Oh, okay. I'm not going to do it. I, I do think that there has to be some sort of limit on this sort of thing, right? Like I think some people kind of recognize, everybody who, most people who do it preface their interruption no matter what you're doing by saying, I'm really, really sorry to interrupt you. Right. Um, but unlike like a Bill or I've been out, like I, I profiled Jordan Peele and walked around a little bit with him and some people respond to his presence. Most people have to confirm it's me before they Flip I was going to ask about that. Right. Yeah. Most people, I mean, many, many people, a lot of people assume that it's me and just go in. But a lot of people, like, say, are you Wesley Morris first? Uh -huh. And that's an interesting thing is I then, like, by confirming and consenting to whatever is about to happen, right? <laughs> well, this is like, like, does one's celebrity expand one's realm of options? Because now you're... You know, you don't have to approach Emily ba Bazelon because you're Wesley Morris, right? That that you are also you sort of have like if you really wanted to talk to somebody, like you're an, an influencer or you're a media personality, and if you became a fan, if you wanted to approach uh, young Miss Singh, what's her first name? Oh, Lily Singh. L yeah. Lily Singh, then you could sort of do you'd have a pretext to do so. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'd have a professional pretext, though, right? Right. Are you saying that as a as a person, as a as a as a person of note, I could. Uh, it would be easy. I'd have easier entree into Lily Singh's life to to not to write a story, but just to like say hi and I like your work. Hmm. Maybe. Okay. I mean, like I have a podcast now. You know, it's a fairly low touch podcast, but. Two it's days ago, podcast, I got to hang out with uh, Ian MacKay, you right, know, right. a guy who I might not approach on the street because it's just like, you know, am I going to be the 10th guy of my generation who goes up to Ian MacKay in the street? <laughs> you know, I know he's a gracious guy, but this gives me a pretext to talk to, to Ian MacKay, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. um, oh, I see what you're saying. I don't know. I, I, I always wonder about this with athletes. I mean, writers, it's really easy. Artists, it's pretty easy. You know, well, art It's a different monster approaching a different, an right. athlete as a writer. You know, like your plat. Well, actually, oh, well, no, that's a whole other thing. They don't. I mean, athletes. But you've written about sports. I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah. Do but, athletes read you? Have you had. Yeah, but they're. I mean, I would never. I, <sighs> Sam Anderson wrote this really great profile of Russell Westbrook that ran in the New York Times Magazine a couple, maybe like last year. And. It, you read it sort of with the impression that, that Westbrook is this standoffish person. I think athletes are inherently distrustful of people who write. I don't know. I mean, I think that there is a belief that, that sports reporters are out to do an athlete dirty. Hmm. Um, and then that sports reporter impression gets carried through to all writers. Right, right. Well, I think sports too is performance oriented, mm -hmm. and if you follow a Twitter vertical that follows a certain sport, <laughs> like I, I have Kansas City Royals baseball Twitter, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. smart people, Randy Gisarelli, an old Grantland guy, is one of the guys I follow. Yeah, yeah. But then there's just so much fickleness when it comes to performance, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that an, that an athlete, you know. Maybe this isn't true, but the the writer covering this person sort of has to 
address their performance and sometimes the performance isn't good and so then sometimes um, there might be a, an assumption on the part of the athlete that the writer doesn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you, it's always tricky, like when you want to profile somebody, how you convince them that you are the person to do the profile, you know, especially. Have, have you profiled athletes? No, I've never written about an athlete. I really want to. Who would um, you profile? I don't know. I would like to do somebody who isn't an obvious person. And I'd like to do it with, I mean, like I, my natural go-to would be tennis. Uh-huh. Like I would love to, I mean, you know, it, like writing about some sort of tennis person. But that is too easy for me. I like to pick a sport. I mean, there, I know how all sports work. I know all, you know, and I know I follow pretty much all sports. Um, but, it, but it would be fun to like write about a, like a cricket star. Hmm. You know what I mean? Or hmm. like a rugby star. Um, Have you been following the World Cup? Yeah, I've been following the World Cup. Okay. I mean, I'm not, again, like a soccer, in the U.S., a soccer thing would be a big deal. But like, it would, be, it would be more interesting to me to write about a sport that we don't play really at all, right? So um, would it be like a, a Pakistani cricket mm-hmm, star and mm-hmm, maybe how his mm-hmm. celebrity and... Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, also, you know... I'd have to like really, if you can think of, of, a, of a great American story about cricket or rugby, tell me. Um, but I mean, it is something that, that I would like to pick a team or a sport or something and, and, and look and tell some story about it, especially know, as an American. Do you know court tennis? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's another weird one. That's super right? weird. But there was a guy, <laughs> he was the champion for 20 years. Mm-hmm. He was in his 40s before somebody, he got knocked off. Somebody... Somebody's written. I mean, that's this guy's been written about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to say that that's a reason not to it, do it's it. It's probably too late, and that's just a weird sport. Mm-hmm. And like ten thousand people in the world play it. Right. Uh, and then it's just it's like tennis meets chess meets you know it's just it's, it's a strange sport. But that's just that just popped into my head that there are these little sub sports. But how you convince thing. somebody to to let you? I mean. Setting aside like an, like covering like a like a specific team in a sport that doesn't actually get played in the U.S. to the degree that like you know the top four sports do, um, but I don't. I mean, I, there is something about being me at this point in my career wanting to write about certain things, whether I'm profiling somebody or writing about a show. And so um, you're critic at large, is that what you are at the New mm-hmm, York Times? Mm-hmm. Actually, this, this sort of leads into the second part of what I wanted to talk about. So I'm curious, when Bill approached you for Grantland, did he know you from the Globe as a Boston guy? And did he want you as a movie guy or as a polymath? Or someone who could speak to race and sports and movies? Do you know? Um, I think, <laughs> I don't know, what would Bill say? Bill would say that he wanted me to write about movies. Um, but he also, but you know, the, the reason that the Grantland thing happened at all was because I had had this blog where I was writing about clothes and sports. Like uniforms? Mm, more just about, I didn't write about anybody's uniform. I actually okay. find uniforms boring. I find changes in uniforms interesting. Um, but I don't find, I mean, there are, I, I've, I had never really been able to successfully with my own interest, write about uniforms. It's more like the way clothes look on specific people, right? And that could involve a uniform. Okay. But you know, like, you know, there was that site UniWatch or whatever. Like, that's an interesting thing that, like, is appealing to people who watch college sports uniforms, right? Right. I guess I'm interested in that because as a kid, I was, I was really into the NFL and I was fascinated by like, why are the Buccaneers uniforms so ugly? Like who made that Oh, decision? sure, that's, that's a no-brainer point of interest. But, but then right. now it's so, internet culture has made that a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. As a kid, mm-hmm. I was just passively accepting whatever in the 70s and 80s the NFL put on their players. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to make this entirely about sports uniforms. No, but no, no. But I, well, I, but I do think that the the thing that when you ask this question, I, I am. Uh, the thing when it comes to uniforms that I like writing about is like what things used to look like versus what they look like now, and like the story that those changes tell about our relationship to our comfort with. I mean, I've written about the change in baseball uniforms when I was at Grantland, um, and how much tighter 
or much more, how much baggier they became. Hmm. And like, you know, during the steroid oh, era, you know, right, they yeah. were really like, they were very tight. I'm a gay man. So gotcha. you, it's a kind of thing you notice and it's a kind when of thing you notice. they were tight in the 80s changed. and 90s, right? Baseball uniforms. Yeah. During the steroid era, everybody's uniforms were skin tight. Right. And then post steroids, they got really baggy. Like somebody had let the air out of these bodies and the uniforms no longer fit. Right. And I found those uniforms to be like, they told a story of shame and- The baggy uniforms. Oh yeah. And self-consciousness and, and, and like, like corporeal discomfort, right? Whereas there is no, there's no pride in a baseball uniform now. Is that a gay man perspective? I don't know. It's okay. just the thing that I, <laughs> it's right. just the thing that I feel. Right. Um, I don't know what a baseball player would say to that, but I don't care what a baseball player would say to that because I'm a spectator right. of a sport that is telling me a story. Hmm. And this is the story these clothes are telling me. Well, basketball uniforms got bad years, like since the 70s. Oh, yeah, right? same thing. Yeah. But I think that's a different thing. Those, okay. That doesn't seem like shame to me. That seems like, like a discomfort with masculinity to me. Hmm. And they're, they're not dissimilar, but the stories are, there's different chapters in a similar story. I think that if you go back and look at what we would call nut huggers, right? Like you go back, you <laughs> yeah. go back and look at yeah. how everybody in the NBA played in nut huggers. Right. And the idea that you would play, like, I, I don't know whether or not you could feel the freedom that you feel as an NBA player now, given the, like, much more the degree of difficulty of being an elite player in the NBA now versus being an, an elite player in the NBA like in 1977 or 85 or even 91 or two, it's just, they're just worlds of difference to me. Well, that was when baseball still ruled, you know? Right. And then when did the ABA and the NBA merger? I mean, that was sort of... Wasn't that like the late 60s? What? I thought, I thought ABA was around in the 70s, but ABA, I think there's a 30 for 30 about how that brought swagger to basketball and maybe paved the road for celebrity basketball being, you know, holding its own and, and actually surpassing baseball in terms of celebrity. Oh yeah, for sure. But I also think, well, you've, there's too many guys in a baseball team. Yeah. I think the way that... Well, the body is visible in a basketball uniform too, in a way that baseball and football it isn't, even right. without nut huggers. Right. And, and I would be interested to see a Bring Nut Huggers Back campaign. <laughs> I tried it, it did not work. Really? I wrote a, who did I write about? Was it the Nuggets? <laughs> I definitely wrote about the change in in uniforms, I think it was around the Denver Nuggets. Didn't the Nuggets have frills? Like, uh, yeah, it was like, like a um, cowboy um, type uniform. I don't remember what the occasion was to write about like the history of the Denver Nuggets uniform, but right. like it's that is the best NBA uniform by far, given like get like Some from the standpoint of its happen. permutations, right yeah. over over the decades. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just really love, I, there's no, nobody, I mean, very few people sort of take seriously what athletes wear when they're playing and what, when they're not playing. And then all of a sudden, around the time that I was doing this for Grantland, other people were doing it too. They were writing about, you know, the sort of fashion wars between and among NBA players. Hmm. Like, you know, LeBron and and Dwayne Wade would show up to these press conferences. Like the the locker room walk-in became right. a thing. Interesting. And you know, the the cameraman eventually learned to shoot these guys from toe to head. And you know, initially they would just it would just be a, a mid um, like a like a sort of mid-range close-up. But then, you know, I don't know who... It feels like there's a book in this. Because, like, Michael Jordan has been made fun of for being a little bit schlubby off court, oh, right? Oh, epically schlubby, yeah. yeah. Um, though there's something in there. There's definitely, there's definitely, like, a book or something about... And, and, and at some point, I want to ask you about your book. Before we're done here, I want to ask <laughs> you about your book. Can you talk about your book? Okay. Um, I'm not finished. Wesley but... just sort of smirked at himself. <laughs> um, but I'm curious to know... I'm curious to, to span the, the Grantland to New York Times gap because mm -hmm. Jenna is different than Bill, right? And, mm -hmm. and um, I'm curious to know that sort of, it feels like Grantland allowed you to be a polymath and that, that suddenly you could write about sort of whatever you wanted. It sort of like it paved the way for you being the critic at large. Mm -hmm. and so how are those jobs different? And 
how has criticism changed? Like, like um, I would imagine the critic at large in 1978 had a different monster to, to contend with. Yeah. Well, I mean, the change between Grantland and the New York Times is basically that I'm writing about fewer, I'm doing, I'm doing many fewer film reviews, right? right? Like when I was at Grantland, my primary job was writing about movies, was, was practicing film criticism on movies. Um, and at Grant, I mean, and, and you know, was I that also- Was that a grind? Was that um, reviewing five movies a week sort of thing? Was that a grind? No, okay. I mean, yes, but it was, I, I, was very, I'm, I was very used to it. I wonder, I could, pr I wonder how much of a, of a muscle, of a like sort of automatic reflex it is, because I haven't done it now in, almost three years, um, like daily, daily film criticism. Um, but it was a grind, but it wasn't, you know, it was just the way it was. Like, I mean, I'm sure like guys who cover, you know, local sports teams would say that's a grind oh, too, right. but yeah. you, it's just a thing that you get used to. Like I just heard Adam Liptak who covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times say today that, you know, what did you think, you know, somebody, I think it was Michael Barbaro in the Daily asked him, like, what did you think when you heard the news of uh, Anthony Kennedy's resignation from the, or retirement from the Supreme Court? And Adam Liptak says the thing that all writers think who are responsible for covering a thing, well, there goes my summer, was his response. And it's true, like, that's the first thing you think. Like, you know, when somebody, when, when George Michael died, I was like, oh, there goes my New Year's, you know? <laughs> Meaning? It's horrible, but it's true. Um, because he, it's your job. You're required to address yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, horrible for George Michael, obviously. That's the primary first in the culture and all of it. But personally, you know, you do have to sort of reorient your life to be able to handle a thing that you didn't have to deal with two minutes ago. I'm curious about the iceberg under the water in these situations, because one thing, like when you spoke to my students, you said, yeah, I have to get back to New York for a screening and write a review, something along those lines. Right. And just like, right. how does he do that? <laughs> um, so you must be calling on a massive expertise to be able to crank out a movie review in a, in a couple of hours. Or do you just address the movie itself without addressing wider things? I mean, when you're addressing the death of George Michael, you have to think about everything that he represented and, and, and speak to his music and career in a way that is meaningful and makes connections. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't really have a very, I mean, it, it is a very, um, I don't want to say arbitrary to like imply that there's no thought that goes into the process of doing it, but it is kind of arbitrary because I can't, I don't really know I don't know where my brain is going to go, you know, like I'll have an idea. So it idea. happens in the writing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, this, isn't that what happens to you? I think it should. And I'll give an example. I watched the HBO show Treme many years ago because mm -hmm. I was living in New Orleans around the time that that was going. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, I realized that I didn't like the show. I was going to ask if you liked it. Yeah, in a way that I realized might be kind of interesting, you know, um, to people who follow this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I was so insecure that I went back and rewatched every episode of the show so I could, it was like, that's like 30 hours of, of television to write the review. Because I, I, I basically I took issue with its portrayal of authenticity. It was so mm -hmm. obsessed with authenticity that it just felt really authentic, uh, inauthentic. Um, anyway, that's maybe why I'm not a critic, is that I felt so self-conscious about if I was going to be critical of this show, I wanted to make sure that I could be very specific. That's not, that is a very smart thing to do, actually. Also, you just don't, I mean, this is basically what you just said is a version of what I'm kind of saying. I mean, it's not that I don't go into, a, into writing a piece like over-prepared in terms of what I know, but sometimes I'm lucky because I already, I come into it with that work having already been done. But a lot of the times, like I, I wouldn't write about Treme without going back and rewatching, doing exactly what you did. Um, did you watch Treme? I did. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. You know. that, that was a big react. Another reason why I wrote that, it felt like a lot of people weren't saying that it was not that great because it was David Simon. You know, Alex Papadimus wrote the great, uh, one of the oh. one of the one of the really good Treme pieces. Yeah, yeah. Where I mean, like all of the issues that that it just crystallized all of the problems with the show. 
while, I remember that piece. He, while, it, was an ex, it was a Grantland piece. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I just feel like when you're sitting down to write something, you, you want to bring with you everything that you know about whatever. Like, I'm going to review... So is your time. iceberg 20 years deep just because you've been a, a movie critic? Yeah. I mean, it's probably more expansive than that, but... I don't know. You you have a strategy when you go in to write a piece, right? Like, you know... Like, for instance, I'm going to review this Whitney Houston documentary that comes out in a couple weeks. I'm going to review it for the New York Times. And... I've seen the movie, I know more or less how I feel about it, I know the things, I, I know how I want to approach the explanation of what it is and how it made me feel and, and what, what is or is not successful about it. And after I start doing that, like I, I don't know. We'll see what happens when I start typing. But I mean, I basically know how I feel about the movie. I know how I feel about Whitney Houston. I know about how I feel about what happened. And this movie has a particular approach to her life and her work. Um, and I will lay that out. But, you know, I guess I'm bringing with me all my feelings about Whitney Houston as a, as a, as a famous person and as an artist. Um, and then I guess you also bring your feelings about Bobby Brown, and then you bring your feelings about black celebrity, and then you bring your feelings about the work of Kevin McDonald, who made the movie, because um, he also made that um, the Edie Amin movie with Forrest Whitaker. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, it's just like a, like you 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 have a wealth of things to choose from, and how you tell a story with all of this information that can't exceed like 900 words. Ooh. You know, it's like. You have to be somewhat judicious, um, and you have to find a tone capacious enough, but not, you know, too broad to get all this stuff in it, while also making a case for or against something. How do you deal with movies you really hate, um, that you find... Um, hmm. you, I guess there's, there's sort of an assumption that maybe if, if you really, really hate something, then you're not the person to review it because maybe it's not. Oh, that's absurd. Who oh, really? says that? I, um, <laughs> okay. No, I mean, is that, a, I mean, I, I hear. I guess that's another reason why I felt a little bad. Like I, I, I just began to hate Treme at, at a certain point. And right, I, but this show was made for you, right? Yeah. Like, and you didn't like it. Right. And you felt compelled to express why. So how do you do that on behalf of, of the reader? Because there might be a personal reason but why I'm not, I'm, But see, I'm not doing anything on behalf of the reader. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I, I don't think that way about the way criticism should work. I, I, and I trust that you understand as a reader. I mean, and a lot of people don't feel this way, which becomes, it can become a problem when people don't understand what the mission of a particular critic is. My thing is, I'm not writing for the reader. I'm writing for myself, and I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be solipsistic about it. I'm not going to. There won't. I mean, I'm not a narcissist, and I am gonna tell a story about the thing I'm writing about that that hopefully will make you want to keep reading it. And in doing that, there will be. Um, There'll be some elements of, there'll be something that you can find as a reader to uh, agree, disagree with, um, something that will enlighten or challenge you. You know, all of the things that a critic is supposed to say about what the critic's mission is, but I'm definitely not doing it, I'm not not doing it with a reader in mind, but there is no, there's no greater reader-oriented, quote, agenda, unquote, than that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, your, your need to write about Treme is, is inherently personal, right? Um, and I think that anybody who is interested in you or the show or in good writing is going to read this thing and they're going to learn something or they're going to have a story be told for them about your relationship to this show or 
the show's relationship to New Orleans or to jazz or to realness and authenticity. It occurs to me that there's sort of a trust relationship. Yeah, you know, that sure. The reader trusts you as Wesley Morris. Uh, like I'm trusted as a travel writer to evoke a place, and I might miss something because I'm, because everybody might miss something in a place. Uh, but at the at the end of the day, there's a certain trust in my writer relationship when I do, and and so. Just hearing you say that makes me realize that there's, there's that trust that, that you're Wesley Morris and people understand that that's the perspective it's coming from. I'm curious, is, the, is there ever a pressure f from your um, editors or from your audience to be representational? Like to be mm -hmm. not just Wes Wesley Morris, this person with ideas, but Wesley Morris seeing this movie as a black person. Yeah, that's the thing that editors ask you. Well, they won't explicitly ask you for it. At this point, they kind of understand. You know, if I get asked to write about Bill Cosby at this point, I'm, I'm not, they're not asking James Ponowozik to write about Bill Cosby. James is the TV critic at the paper. Um, they're asking me because I'm a black person who writes about culture. Um, and so, you know, you have to figure out, and I would say this, I, any, any, I would say to any young non-white person, not any non-straight white man who is asked to write about whatever non, whatever is like not straight, white, and male about them um, by an editor, to like ask yourself, you know, do, is this something I feel comfortable doing in terms of like how it leaves me exposed? Am I gonna tell a story that I've got in the bank that I wanna use for some other thing later on? Am I gonna, am I gonna waste it on this like 800 word or 700 word assignment? Um, and you should ask yourself that before you like, you know, use up all your, all you, your good story chips. Okay, when, you, um, when you're saying you, are you talking about the white straight male critic or are you talking about? I'm, talking about the non-straight white male Oh, gotcha, critic. gotcha. But I should oh, also- Using your identity chips. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just, just save them. Yeah. Because I think editors- Interesting. Yeah. Editors will ask you to, to spend them down, but you shouldn't if you don't feel comfortable or if you don't feel like there's a reason for you to do it. Where's the intersection of, of individuality too? Because, I mean, do you ever get uncomfortable is there an assumption that you're supposed to have the black take that is no, somehow- No, well, I mean, yes. A bad editor will expect you to have that. But a good editor will know that you just want what Wesley says because gotcha. you know that I don't speak for black people right. in, the, in, in, in any sort of like wholesale way. But, you know, I also know as a black person that there are just, I know what the rules of being a black person in America are. I know who stays within them and who transgresses them. I think, you know, you, you, every once in a while somebody will touch the electric fence and people will hear the sizzle, like when Kanye West, you know, does whatever Kanye West does, right? I mean, that is a, like, anytime you needed a, needed a reminder of, you know, where black people are on an issue, let a Bill Cosby or a, or a Kanye West do something quote, crazy, unquote. Let Ben Carson say something about black people, or like, you know, public housing, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm writing as myself. I'm just writing as, I'm, I'm writing as what I would say, I'm writing as what I would describe as being a professional black person. Okay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, I know, I know what it is to be black in America. I do not write on behalf of, I don't write necessarily on behalf of black people, but I do think that there are enough black people in my life and in my daily conversation that um, I kind of know where a lot of people stand on things. But I'm never writing, I'm, I, I can't think of a lot of things I've written that were leading with that as, as much as I'm leading with what I know to be true about a particular person, place, thing, uh, problem, and assume that that other there'll be some people who will agree with me and some people who won't. Um, and, and I mean, black people. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, only a bad editor is going to ask you to like 
write something about. I need this from the Punjabi. Just, can you yeah. represent all Punjabi people in writing yeah. this piece? No, it's just not. Do you have a sense for your black versus white audience? Because I think there's a certain white audience that's going to want to hear a black person speak to this, right? And that's a different reaction than the black people who are analyzing. Oh, the... that's a great way to think about the differences. But I mean, I don't, I sometimes will wonder after I've written something and it's run and, it's in, and it has been responded to how many black people actually saw it sometimes hmm. or I mean that's not a I mean that's a for example because as it turns out you know I'm lucky I get a I I have a pretty good sense of the of the diversity of the people who read certain things um but I but I do sometimes worry that you are making white people feel good about or feel better making a particular kind of white person, like probably like, you know, like a, like a middle-aged liberal or, you know, a middle-aged so-called liberal white person feel slightly better about not being some other kind of middle-aged white person. Well, I've seen that in white people to white people discourse is that, right. that there's the, that there's the person um, quoting Ta-Nehisi Coates to white explain blackness to another white person, right? And so then Ta-Nehisi becomes yes, the yes. voice for all black people because there's white, white people, people who have never yeah. had meaningful relationships with black people, perhaps mm-hmm. because of their rarefied left wing, you know. Right. Did you see what? Yeah, know, yeah. yeah. And, and Ta-Nehisi becomes this proxy for, for the black people not in these white people's lives. He is there. He it, is that's there exactly, that's exactly, and it's, that, need not be insidious, you know, but it, but it gets weird. Be. And know? it also puts black people in the discomfort, in the, in the discomforting, in the sort of, it puts black people in the, in the awkward position of having to not like Ta-Nehisi because he is weaponized in this particular way, right? Right. It is, he is being weaponized by white people against other black people and other white people as, mm-hmm. as being representative of some experience that he's not asking to be represented. It's as a wokeness credential to other white people. It's a weird thing. Yes, but it is frequently, and this is a sort of, this is the model minority thing too, where, you know, white people invent these, these, these racial category, categories and hierarchies to use against other sort of so-called minorities. I don't like the term minority, but whatever. It's like you, under the, like when you, model minority, it's in the word. So give an example of what you just said. Well, I mean, well, model minority is like its own thing, right? Where it's a designation for Asian Americans by white people to use as an example of not only a, a racist system's non-racism because it, it has made this space for Asian Americans and therefore couldn't be racist against African Americans and Latinos because... If Asian people can do X, then we'll... Why can't you guys? Right. And there's there's plenty of there's a seat at the table for you if you can just be like these Asian people, whose history to this country is totally different from these black people over here. And I mean, you know, we in this country do not like history, and it is very convenient to come up with these very present-oriented, ahistorical designations for people, um, based on what is currently happening in 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 utter disregard for the past um so you know on the face of it in 2018 yes why shouldn't you know this korean american um why shouldn't this this you know african-american from detroit not have the not be able to do the exact same things and have the exact same experiences as this korean american um but you know you just go back five years and you can understand why that is but people don't want to do that so anyway my my only point (laughs) And people a, won't want to do that in the year 2023. You know? Right. It feels also, like this is, we keep waking up to our own The farther away we get from that, the harder it is to like bring 200 years ago with us. Um, but I just don't like the way that the, the, there is a way that in writing for a, a publication whose readership is predominantly white, like the New York Times, it does put you in the position of, potentially being weaponized or used as, 
as a kind of explainer for or proxy for uh, black experience according to white people. But I also don't entirely, but I, I don't know, I feel like I just don't, I've, I just have never, I mean, I, it could be that people aren't speaking completely honestly with me, but I've never had a conversation with, a, with, a, with another black person about my work where that's been the case. But I'm also, you know, I also in the scheme of things am not, I'm not, you know, Roxanne Gay or ta coach, right? Like I'm not somebody who, you know, I don't have a book. I do not have this sort of literary platform from which people can hear me speak and misconstrue what I'm saying, you know? I mean, it's not that The Times isn't like, a, like, a, like an important platform, but there's something different when you're like out giving speeches once a week to wide, to large audiences of people. And th there's that public intellectual aspect too. Yeah. Because Roxane Gay is the other pole. She's the other writer that white people use to white explain blackness to white people. Right, you know? right, right. Um, and in a way, I think, Actually, where do you think, is your book going to give you a platform or is it more, is it specific to uh, something cinematic? And I don't know, really know what your book is. Is it about representation of black? Uh, it's about, it's about, uh, it's about the invention of the performance of blackness. Okay. You know, it's about who blackness belongs to and who created it. In cinema or in all? In popular, in American popular culture. Okay. Um, and you know, there's a good 230 years of, <laughs> of, 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 of stuff to go through. Um, and it's not encyclopedic as much as it is like a, like a, like an argument, like a historical argument for why we are where we are now. Does it look at like 19th century songbooks and, and things yes. like that? Yeah. Cause my, mom... well, the performance of the songs in the songbooks right. too. Right. Yeah. Your mom? Well, she grew up in a country school, you know, in the uh -huh. 1940s when she was a little girl. She had a songbook. It's yellow. I looked at it. Where? And, um, rural Kansas. Okay. Um, sort of a lot of uh, German settlers, German Catholic and German Lutherans. Um, and her songbook is, is, is horrifying. You know, the songs that they sang, just kids' songs mm -hmm. about darkies and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I think they're old Stephen Foster songs. Stephen and Foster others of that is ilk. the... Um, and then actually when I was, I did a book for 33 and a third about the Ghetto Boys. And when I was looking oh, yeah. at how um, vulgar that music was received in the 1990s, uh, Alan Lomax recorded Jelly Roll Morton singing songs that were sung in bordellos mm -hmm. that were just as raunchy. Mm -hmm. They just weren't popular culture. They were specific to place. They were not put on wax. Right. Uh, and so Jelani Cobb uh, in his book about hip hop uh, alludes to that. You know, right. The fact that it's nothing that that kind of lyric was not new. It was just the first time it had been presented to a mass audience. Right, right, um, right. Uh, and so, yeah, your book sounds fascinating. It, sounds like <laughs> it, has, it has to cover a lot of bases. I mean, uh, if, it's not just, if it's not just black representation in the movies, if it's, if it's the entire... It's the whole... I mean, it's as much of the whole thing as I can bring myself to, to think about. But I mean, really, it's sort of focused on this very specific question of... of the proliferation of, a, of blackness, first courtesy of white people, then courtesy of black people doing what, what, white, people, what white people did, um, and what, what that is and what it means to still have it. And then, you know, how did black people sort of respond? What were the means by which they sort of broke free of that for a minute, invented something else, and then more or less wound? I mean. I think the what's the something else? Uh like a different style of acting okay. that wasn't that also was simultaneously not terribly different from burnt cork minstrelsy. Is this like Oscar Michaud? Oh, we're era? past that. This okay. is I mean, I mean I'm talking about like 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 Shaft. Gotcha. You know, so black exploitation. Like the characters in Shaft. Like like the black exploitation era of of, of American was like Spike Lee a shift out of that? Because sort of when I was starting to pay, when I was first starting to pay attention to movies was when She's Gotta Have It came out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And which became popular, it was interesting because it made money, you know? Yeah. That it was this John Pearson well, movie that, that made money and then saw, all of a sudden it's like, well, we, we have to pay attention to it. Was that a turning point or is it not that simple? Um, it's not that simple. 
I mean, I think the story that I'm going to tell involves, I mean, I'm trying to tell a, a very complicated story in a somewhat linear sort of, um, this part represents a whole sort of fashion. So I would say, I mean, the thing that I'm thinking is that you, is that Sidney Poitier is the, is the, is the decisive break hmm. from uh, early, early 20th century depictions of black people. And while he did do a very, very he, he was required to do a thing that exonerated a certain kind of white person, the way that he did it is very different from the way any black person had functioned in American popular culture before him. Um, so there was an invention of something new there, both ideologically and artistically, um, because he had to occupy more space than any black person had ever been asked to occupy before. And he was doing it in a medium that was seen by many different types of Americans. Um, and, you know, he had 20 years to, like, invent this thing. Um, Sidney Poitier. Yes. Oh. And, you know, I mean, he was simultaneously a white invention and a self-invention. Um, he wasn't American, so he had none of the baggage hmm. that, you know, an American actor would have had. In, is in is Sammy Davis stuff. Jr. a corollary here? Um, he is, but it's a different thing where, you know, he comes right out of a tradition, like an American performance tradition. Like, he is basically, there's a straight line from like 1830, you know, Burt Cork minstrelsy to Sammy Davis Jr., okay. right? But, and he's also fascinating because, you know, he was crucified for being tethered to that, but at the same time, like, was more politically black than people remember him being. Um, Have you listened to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast about him? No, not yet. I'm, yeah. There's some, there's like a, like a, like a small pile of things I'm saving for, for when I'm for ready to, yeah, well, for when I'm ready to engage with them as I, I don't want to just casually listen to that because okay. that means I have to listen to it like three times. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I'm saving, there was, it's, it's a work listen instead of a pleasure listen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's some things that, that I'm just looking forward to, like, spend. Like, you know, I'm doing some D.W. Griffith stuff right now. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm going to spend next weekend doing some Miley Cyrus stuff. And then uh, I don't know when I'm going to... I mean, I'm trying to, like, I'm not... I'm telling a story, and I've, like, there are different people who are involved in the telling of the story. Does hip hop but, come into play? Yeah, of course. Yeah, but not, but not in a. <sighs> a lot of people have written good things about the relationship um, between hip hop and minstrelsy, um, and I don't really know. I mean, I don't have well, anything. Uh, when I think of hip hop, I mean, this is something I framed in my book too. And, and sorry, ladies and gentlemen, for the for the vacuum cleaner. For the vacuum cleaner. Um, but I like. I saw hip hop as the first popular music form of the 20th century that wasn't appropriated by white people. And the reason that it wasn't appropriated is because it became neighborhood specific. That mm, authenticity mm. came not out of the music or the dancing, but out of having come out of Queensbridge or Fifth Ward or Compton, right? But the thing I would argue is... Do you think it has been appropriated? There's nothing that will stop white people from okay. trying to do some black shit. Right. Because it's too but, but, easy. But and rock and roll is completely white. I mean. Yeah. It, I mean. And if you look but at. But hip hop isn't. And so. But it's, 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 it's always getting whiter. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, you just look at a guy like Post Malone, who is, he couldn't be any whiter. But, you know, the, the, the trap music that he's, that he is working with is it couldn't that couldn't be blacker this band has never sold a drug in his life so where does but, he get his permission this is the thing trap this is the thing about the book you don't need permission to do any of this shit because it is fundamentally baked into every aspect of american popular culture it is the first thing that we invented that that was entirely ours was 
black people was white people dressing as black people and and entertaining other people okay like okay. it didn't come from france it didn't come uh-huh. from europe we yeah. made this shit up yeah. i mean there are examples in ireland and of 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 white men painting their faces black as part of an entertainment structure and they brought that over here with them but the but the racial black in african sense no okay just like just as a point of contrast with the white people with you know with with the white skin there was no there was no racial component to the way i don't know if it was burnt cork that they used in ireland but i i would assume so because that's the best way so to it sounds get like that. burnt cork is a big part of this is that it sort of flows out of that that's a metaphor is that a metaphor that goes throughout the book that kind of entertainment that yeah. appropriation yeah yeah, yeah. i mean okay. but I just, I'm arguing that you don't need permission to do it. You just have to, your motives have to be, I mean, if there's a moral dimension to this, it's that your motives have to be good. Okay, gotcha. Or clear. Gotcha. Like, there's nothing wrong with the Hall and Oates and Tina Marie's and Eminem's of the world if what they're doing is, is, is like appreciably sincere. Um, You know, it's funny because I have conflict. I mean, a lot of people have conflicted feelings about the Rolling Stones, right? And, you know, but those guys, they had balls. They, you know, they kind of knew the history they were dealing with. If you listen to Brown Sugar, they can't ever say they didn't know that slavery wasn't a thing. And that, you know, black women didn't get raped by white dudes on plantations. And yet... I mean, the fifth track or the sixth track on Tattoo You is Slave, and it's got Sonny Rollins and Billy Preston playing on it, you know? So there was a degree that, like, these white boys had sufficiently impressed black people enough in their artistry, sincerity, talent, and interest in in black culture that it was okay to help prop them up. Um, And it didn't hurt Billy Preston financially or Sonny Rollins financially right. to, to, you know, to record some tracks with, with the Rolling Stones. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. There are real, like, mixed, mixed use cases like the Rolling Stones. And then there are people like Tina Marie who I just think, honestly, just she, was a, she understood herself to be a white woman with a black soul. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know how that happens. But I mean, it's it's inevitable because you grew up with this music, this black music. You, it just gets in you, the sure. way it gets in anybody, um, and you can't deny somebody's belief in this music as being great. It's just like you can't treat it the way I would say Justin Timberlake treats it, which is like a, a flip, a, a switch you can flip on. Hmm. So, I don't know. That's kind of I mean. Are there enough identifiable data points to like make an app, a sincerity app? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, so, so <laughs> so you, I mean does it require a Wesley Morris to interpret? Uh, is it a critical sensibility or is it something that can be come down I mean, to data? I think that you could, I mean, I think it's a great game to play, which is like, what do you, I mean, it's, I, I, you know, why, why yes to Hall and & Oates and no to, I don't know, Chromio, you know, or to, you know, why yes to, you know, Hall and & Oates and, and no to Robin Thicke, right? Like, I mean, there are any number of, it, like, or Miley Cyrus. I, there are a number of, yes, there is a clear spectrum and it'd be... It would be great to just sort of present these people to the public and just be like, you guys figure it out. You know, I mean, part of what I want to do is figure it out for myself um, and to argue that there's no, there's nothing absolute about, I mean, this is why I don't like the term appropriation. I understand what it's supposed to do. Well, there's a fundamentalist interpretation of it. Shit. You have to go. Yeah. But, I mean, well, real quick. and again, I would like to have another conversation at some point, um, even if it's a couple years from now. What's the name of your book and when does it come out? Or do you even know? Uh, two years. And I mean, the publication date is two years, less than two years, like 2020. And I'm changing the title because the book changed. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I'm workshopping some things. I've got a perfect title that I also don't like. Okay. Um, What's the perfect title? Can you say? Do I have to? <laughs> Wesley just slumped. Um, the title thing is like a thing that's been in the back of my mind since I changed, since I narrowed the focus of the book. Uh, I was well, sad to give up that title. I'm ready to read it. Sign me up. <laughs> and, and to my listeners, keep an eye out for that. Uh, we will tie a ribbon on this and put Wesley on the road to his next podcast recording. But thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me. I'll come back. Yeah. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Theme music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.